Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. William, Donald and Amy McSwan have gone to Scotland. Or Ireland. Or was it America? It was one or the other. I mean, does it really matter? Johnny's ruse was simple. A shy, reclusive family, who were never reckless, impulsive and rarely went out, had unexpectedly fled the country in the dead of night, leaving behind everything they had ever owned, from their homes, businesses, stocks and savings, to their teacups on the table, their bread in the basket and their clothes in the cupboard. But somehow, it had worked. The McSwans were an intensely private, tightly knit and deeply loyal family who kept to themselves. So with no close relatives or concerned family, no one reported them missing. Armed with a set of keys, a forged letter and a power of attorney, over the next few months, Johnny paid the remaining rent on their top floor flat, settled any bills, collected the post, tipped the milkman, topped up their gas meter with coins, and even paid Max's monthly subscription to the Amusement Caterers Association. On paper, the McSwans still existed, just not in person. But as clever and calculated as Johnny was, being so uncaring and eager to fritter away this family's fortune, he was also brazen and callous. And having let himself in, rifled through the drawers and flogged off the dour clothes and sparse furnishings of the recently deceased, Johnny sold everything. And before he sold all four of their houses, cocky in his confidence, he even collected the monthly rents, in person, having signed the rent book himself. As for the McSwan's pitiful pension of a piffling 22 shillings per week, he left that as it wasn't worth his time. Within a few months, having stolen the equivalent of £210,000, Johnny had dissolved every single asset of the McSwan family, until just like their corpses, nothing existed. By August 1945, having made enough money to last a lifetime, the killing spree of John George Haig, one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, should have come to an end. But it didn't. 
Johnny Haig was jubilant. Yes, 1944 had been a right dog's dinner, but with 45 going great guns, 46 being a real pip, and although Britain was in the grip of post-war austerity, for Johnny, 1947 was looking to be a bit of a doozy. One month after he had casually flushed the whole McSwan family down the sewer, billowing with banknotes, Johnny permanently moved into the rather upmarket Onslow Court Hotel. Room 404 was his manpad, an exclusive serviced room with Indian linen sheets on the soft-sprung mattress, an armchair for entertaining his chums, a wardrobe full of his tailored suits, a drawer for his dress shirts, silk shorts, ties and hankies, so Johnny the entrepreneur always looked dapper. And at his desk, a fountain pen, a diary, several books on mechanics, and an imperial typewriter. Catering to his every whim, the bellboy polished his shoes, the maid cleaned his room, the concierge collected his dry cleaning, and the night porter emptied his waste bin. So with nothing to do but to choose between breakfast, luncheon, tiffin, high tea, drinkies, din-dins, or a little late supper, he busied himself by mingling in the dining room with the wealthy, the cultured, the respected, and the widowed. That said, as much as South Kensington's most eligible bachelor loved to tootle about town in his dark green Armstrong Sidley saloon, the bright glint of its waxed body, the subtle squeak of its leather seats, the luxurious whiff of a walnut dash, and the solid rumble of its 20-horsepower engine really turned some heads. Unfortunately, he felt it was a bit fuddy-duddy for a real go-getter, so his new wheels would have to go. But it wasn't all play, you know. Johnny's company, Union Group Engineering, was up and running. Established to give legitimacy to his purchase of high quantities of lethal acids, now as a legitimate businessman, he used his money to develop ideas with inventors. Okay, he lied a little bit. His business address was a hotel room. His title of technical liaison officer was self-appointed. The BSc initials after his name related to a phony degree. And he had no training as an engineer. But then again, half of success is confidence, right? In 1945, he invested in a needle threader. In 1946, he dabbled in toy rocking horses made from tubular steel. And in 1947, having invested £225 in Hursley Products Limited to develop a silent jackhammer and a battery-powered fan, the boss, Edward Jones, appointed Johnny as nominal director. Eager to make a go of it, Johnny didn't take a wage. But instead, he relished the role's credibility, the extra petrol rations, and keen to develop his own inventions, Having purchased it off Alan Stevens, Edward gave Johnny access to a small storeroom in Crawley, based at number two, Leopold Road. So had the sadistic serial killer stopped his killing spree to become a serial investor? Well, yes, 
he had. Ex-con Johnny was gone, as having realised his full potential and blossomed into a respected company director who lived well, dressed fine and spoke properly. Moving in middle-class circles, this gave him the perfect opportunity to meet like-minded people, like Archibald and Rosalie Henderson. I met the Hendersons by answering an advertisement for the sale of their property at 22 Ladbrook Square. They were staying at the Metropole Hotel in Brighton. I took Dr Henderson to the storeroom at Leopold Road, disposed of him by shooting him in the head, and I put him in a tank of acid. Simple. Of course, the Hendersons were not part of his original plan. Johnny wasn't a cold-blooded killer. He was a cool-headed businessman. But sometimes, try as you might, life has other ideas. Johnny liked Archie. They were so similar. But whereas Mac was the little boy that Johnny once was, Archie was the older brother he aspired to be. Archibald Henderson was born in Glasgow on the 20th of July 1897, 11 years before Johnny. And although identical in many ways, Archie's upbringing was a blueprint to how Johnny wished his life had been. Raised in the prosperous Scottish suburb of Partick, to a housewife mother and a banker father, unlike Johnny, Archie was proper middle class, not an uppity coal miner's son with lofty aspirations. As part-time Presbyterians, who embraced a faith when it suited them, Archie's early years weren't silent and stuffy like the Plymouth Brethren, but were bright and joyous affairs, full of music, colour, laughter and life. And as intensely social people, they were liked, trusted and welcomed. Educated at the affluent high school of Glasgow, just like Johnny, Archie was gifted a great education. But as a daydreamer who wasn't academically blessed, although he loved science and mechanics, he struggled. Conversely, whereas the undersized boy in the bow tie with no siblings and friends, saw school as a very solitary experience. Being tall, sporty, and a big personality, Archie loved school, had oodles of chums, and unlike this only child, he would never be lonely, as by his side was his big sister Ethel. Archie had everything that Johnny did not, money, style, class, and status. And as a strapping six-footer, with chiselled features, an athletic physique, and a very manly moustache, although unconventionally handsome, with sticky-out ears, pursed lips, and a stern stare that glared over the dark bags of his world-weary eyes. Being a real man, Archie was someone that little Johnny Haig literally looked up to. But whereas Johnny was always patient, sober, and distant... As a deeply unhappy man with unfulfilled dreams of living a kept life to a wealthy wife, Archie was often angry, violent and drunk. As a conscript, Private Henderson served in World War I. Unlike Johnny, he didn't dodge the draft. 
but being a lowly squaddy, with little respect for rank, routine or regiment, he was never promoted. And yet, he held on to his medals, his gas mask and his Enfield Mark I service revolver as souvenirs. Demobbed in 1919, ten years and several tries later, he qualified as a doctor from Glasgow University. But being superior, stubborn and self-important, with a dreadful bedside manner and a style which many doctors described as clumsy and inept, instead of patience, he preferred golf, gambling and girls. Archie was unpredictable. Being crippled by spondylitis, a stiffness of the back, kyphosis, a curvature of the spine, and intermittent spasms in his left shoulder. As a debilitating and degenerative illness, his moody demeanor was made worse as he was forced to temper it with drink and prescription drugs. Just like Johnny, Archie hated hard work. When I first discovered there were easier ways to make a living, I did not ask myself whether I was doing right or wrong. I merely said, this is what I wish to do. Go after women, rich old women who like a bit of flattery. That's your market. And although Johnny was yet to bag himself a biggie, Archie was way ahead of him. On the 18th of January 1930, 33-year-old Archie married 29-year-old Frances Dorothy Orr, a wealthy socialite with several lavish pads in Mayfair, Knightsbridge and Kensington, who spoiled him with shirts from Harrods, suits from Savile Row and a bright red Lagonda sports car, as well as many expensive trinkets, including an 18-carat gold cigarette box and lighter engraved with her name, Dorothy. Squandering his wife's wealth, Archie quit work to live a truly hedonistic life of drinking, gambling and womanizing. As a heartless cheat who spent wildly, racked up debts and shagged copiously, to Archie, she wasn't a wife, she was a meal ticket. As heavy drinkers, their South Kensington suite at number three Grenville Place echoed to her volatile screams. As always cursing, fighting, and living in fear of his fists, Dorothy sunk into a deep depression. And for the last few months of their marriage, being drugged up and drunk, crying and catatonic, she lay there, bedbound and broken, cuddling Pat, her red setter puppy. Not that Archie really gave a rat's ass. As with his wife wasted on scotch and sleeping pills which he had prescribed, he openly flaunted his torrid affair with their friend and neighbour, Rosalie Ahrens. On the 20th of April 1937, simply to escape his abuse, Dorothy moved into a private suite at the Bailey Hotel at 140 Gloucester Road. Three days later, she died. And although her family suspected foul play at the hands of Dr. Henderson, her money-grabbing husband, her death was declared natural causes, her body was cremated, and Archie inherited her entire estate, 
a total of £20,000, almost £800,000 today. Johnny liked, admired and respected Archie. He was the older brother he never had, the only pal he ever wanted and the affluent businessman he aspired to be. So it must have been a real bummer to have to bump off Archie. But hey-ho, that's the way it goes. By August 1947, two years had passed since Johnny had slopped the hot mess of the McSwans down into the festering sewer. He was a new man now, respectable, honest and successful, with a company to run, a full life to lead and enough money to last a lifetime. Or so he thought. During the post-war austerity, Although he'd invested in several inventions with Edward Jones, a silent jackhammer, a battery-powered fan, a needle threader, and he had dabbled in the mass production of a rocking horse made of tubular steel, nothing came of them. It was nobody's fault. It happens. But being shamefully shy on his rent at Onslow Court, forced to sell his dark green Armstrong Sidley, which left just two cars in his rented garage, a sporty Alvis and a sedate Saloon 12. And with his good name sullied, owing £353 to five bookies, having placed a few bad bets at the Doggies and the Gigi's. So with every last penny shaken out of the McSwans, once again, Johnny was one month away from being broke. So, somebody had to die. He knew Edward Jones, of course. But why should he murder Edward? Yes, he liked him. And yes, he had some assets. A tidy house, a small engineering firm called Hursley Products, and a storeroom at number 2 Leopold Road, which as co-director, Johnny, the enthusiastic but painfully unskilled inventor, would turn into a little workshop. But just like his old pal Alan Stevens, his income didn't amount to much. So setting aside their friendship, yes, he could kill Edward, but what would be the point? No, Johnny needed money. A lot of money. So he had to murder Archie. The day he met Dr. Archibald Henderson, having bungled the first three supposedly perfect murders, Johnny started making a mental checklist to ensure that the fourth would be just that. Perfect. I found the Hendersons interesting and amusing. We went about a good deal together, and they liked me to play to them. I sat at their piano, interpreting the classics. The Hendersons talked a lot about themselves, and from many conversations, I learned a great deal about them. On the 6th of October 1938, one year after his wife's abrupt death, Archie married his mistress, Rosalie Ahrens. Logistically, this was a tad inconvenient, as with the silly cow, legally now his next of kin, she had unwittingly volunteered herself to be Johnny's fifth victim. Which was a bit of a waste of his time, to be honest. But having done a double drum murder before, and as a nervous lady, 
who was often drunk, drugged, and bedbound, in a style strangely similar to his first wife. Should she die, the police would probably blame Archie. And with their closest relatives being his sister Ethel Norman in Jersey and her brother Arnold Berlin in Manchester, they couldn't affect the power of attorney. So legally, it would be a breeze. Asset-wise, Archie had frittered away his dead wife's estate. But as an impulsive investor who had recently sold his doctor's practice in Upminster, a 20-bedroom guest house at 20 Ladbroke Square, and still owned a flat and a toy shop called the Dolls Hospital, all worth £600,000 today, they would, most definitely, be worth killing. Rosalie was a depressed neurotic with drink and drug issues, a history of secret affairs, wild spending sprees, and a suspicion of sadomasochistic sex. Archie was a crippled, pill-popping alcoholic, with a violent temper, a succession of mistresses, and a string of bad debts. So although a very social couple, their impromptu vanishing wouldn't be unexpected, with it attributed either to suicide stress, self-abuse, or starting a new life together, as they had discussed, in the South African city of Durban. Lou and the Hendersons to their deaths would be a piece of cake. As a budding entrepreneur, eager to make a mint without lifting a finger, who was crippled by a bad back and wore a monocle to read, Archie's bait was obvious. And as for Rosalie, a bedbound, chronically depressed drunk, he had easily pried the reclusive McSwans out of their little hidey hole. So how hard could she be? His one major ball ache was that he never thought he'd be back here again, murdering for money. And besides, everything was gone. So... For the second time in two and a half years, he would have to rebuild his murder basement from scratch. As co-director of Hursley Products, Edward Jones had given Johnny access to number two Leopold Road. It wasn't much, but as a small, isolated storeroom, 30 yards from a remote side road in an industrial part of Crawley, with thick brick walls, no immediate neighbours, a messy yard chock full of indecipherable scrap and hidden behind a six-foot-high fence. Although it had no drain, it was private and perfect. Sadly, the two steel drums he had shipped to Allen's had been scrapped, as a caustic mix of rain and acid had caused them to irreparably rust. But having spied two in a nearby yard, he blagged both for just an ounce of tobacco and called in a freebie from his welder pal Thomas Davies to fix any holes and to fit both with a lid to limit the leakage of toxic gases. So actually, they were better than the old drums. With a black mark against his company's name, which slightly sullied his business terms with Canning & Co, he ordered a Winchester of hydrochloric and three 10-gallon carboys of sulfuric from chemical wholesaler A. White & Sons at the cheaper price of 
eight shillings and sevenpence. As for the rest, the previous occupier had left behind a stirrup pump, so instead of slopping out 535 pounds of highly corrosive acid by bucket, Johnny could now safely fill up the drums without any risk to himself. Also being gifted a thick rubber apron and a pair of rubber gauntlets, from neck to knees and fingers to forearm, Johnny was now fully protected from any acrid splashes, and all at no extra cost. And as a frequent visitor to the Henderson's flat over their Dole's Hospital toy shop at 16 Doors Road, Johnny swiped Archie's army issue respirator, so it was goodbye to the old gas mask made from cardboard and string, and saying farewell to the pinball table leg, the length of lead pipe, and the old rusty hand axe, he pilfered his Enfield Mark I service revolver and an envelope of 11 38 caliber bullets. So to be honest, starting from scratch was all pretty simple actually. On Friday the 5th of February 1948, in the workshop of Thomas Davies, Johnny dangled the tasty morsel, a rocking horse made of tubular steel. As a toy shop owner, Archie loved it. Being short-sighted, he popped on his monocle to inspect it, and with his back aching, he winced as he bent over the bench. But with no sale made, Archie left empty-handed, Thomas was annoyed, but for Johnny, it was fine. On Saturday the 6th, with Rosalie unwell and eager to recuperate, the Hendersons packed three suitcases, all exquisitely marked with a monogrammed H, into their red Lagonda, and accompanied by Pat, they drove from their flat in Fulham to the more isolated Kingsgate Hotel in Broadstairs, Kent. Away from their social life, routine, and anyone who knew them. On Tuesday the 10th, with the Kingsgate being too quiet, they moved to the Metropole Hotel in Brighton, just 21 miles from Leopold Road. Having checked in for six nights, with Rosalie unwell, the housekeeper brought her a hot water bottle and a portable radiator. The maid delivered her meals to her bed and asked to walk her elderly dog. The night porter noticed a vast array of medicines on her bedside table. As in the evenings, the waiter served Archie and a small boyish man with a little moustache. As a busy hotel, which catered to their every whim, the staff noticed nothing suspicious. And why would they? On the morning of Thursday the 12th of February 1948, with Rosalie still very much bedbound, Archie left for a business meeting. No one was concerned, no one reported him missing, and he was never seen alive, ever again. The Hendersons were staying at the Metropole Hotel in Brighton. I took Dr. Henderson to the storeroom at Leopold Road. I disposed of him by shooting him in the head with his own revolver, and I put him in a tank of acid. But was it really that simple? Well, yes, 
It was. Convinced to leave behind his rather ostentatious red Lagonda sports car, as planned, Archie caught the train from Brighton. He was picked up at Crawley Station by an unidentified man in a slightly drab Saloon 12 and sedately driven to an industrial part of town, down a remote road and into a secluded yard, hidden behind a six-foot-high fence and the closed double gates at number two Leopold Road. Being mid-morning and mid-week, of the few neighbours whose premises surrounded the street, with their own busy lives to lead, neither the laundress, the metal presser or the stable yard owner saw, heard or smelled anything out of the ordinary from this engineer's workshop. As Johnny pulled in and parked up his car inside the private yard, his new pal Archie got out. It was an odd little place. Around the fences was a scruffy sea of tangled trash. Tires, boxes and mechanical bits and bobs. And dead centre was a laughably tiny box-like storeroom barely the size of Archie's bathroom. With one door, two windows and a reassuring sign which read Hursley Products. It was just as Johnny had described. Small, simple, but suitable for an ambitious entrepreneur. So led in by his pal and potential business partner, although Archie's bad back made his walk slow and laborious, Johnny took his time. He was in no rush, as death comes to us all eventually. And to some, sooner than most. Unlocking the only door with the only key to the storeroom only Johnny had access to, Archie sensed no danger, no threat, and no suspicion. As in broad daylight, he entered the small brick-lined room of a keen inventor who dabbled in plastics. As expected, hung on a hook on the whitewashed walls was a thick rubber apron and two rubber gauntlets. Nearby were three carboys of unidentified liquid, two steel drums, and flush against the walls was a waist-high bench, on which something drew his attention. Popping his monocle to his dark-circled eye to inspect an invention his pallid placed before him, a six-foot Archie craned over the three-foot bench. He winced a little as a familiar sharp pain shot up his stiff spine, causing his movements to slow to a crawl. But again, Johnny was in no rush. This was all part of his superior plan. As with his victim being short-sighted and partially crippled, this gave Johnny ample time, as from behind, he took aim with Archie's own revolver. In a single shot, his head exploded, as at close range, the 38 caliber bullet ripped through his skull, brain and face, as a fine mist of mucus and blood spattered down the whitewashed wall, causing his monocle to crack as his half-mangled head thumped against the bench. And the lifeless and almost faceless body 
a fifty-year-old Archibald Henderson, slumped in a heap on the dusty floor, dead. It was brazen to shoot a man in broad daylight between two windows, but Johnny was unfazed. With one down and one to go, pockets were emptied, limbs were hogtied, and the body was slid into the drum. But before the acid, the disposal, and the death of Rosalie, which is a mere formality, really was a huge waste of his time. Before all that, he had lunch. Johnny liked, admired, and respected Archie. He was the older brother he never had, the only pal he ever wanted, and the affluent businessman he aspired to be. And although it should have been a real bummer to bump off his buddy, actually, it wasn't all that bad. So with his body dissolved, his assets legally swiped, and the man himself having vanished completely, Johnny would literally become Archie. Everything would now be his, from his home, his bank, his bags and his business, to his shirts from Harrods, his suits from Savile Row, and his 18 karat gold cigarette box engraved with his dead wife's name. He took everything, even his blue silk dressing gown, exquisitely marked, as everything was, with a monogrammed H. Everything he liked, wanted, or was fond of was taken. Even Pat, his elderly red setter. And as Johnny drove the corpse's bright red Lagonda through the West End, although the open-top sports car ruffled his immaculately parted hair, the throaty roar of its 30-horsepower engine and the high-pitched squeal of its racing wheels announced to the city that Johnny Haig had arrived. In his diary, Johnny marked the occasion. I wrote an A for Archie and the sign of the cross. He came to his end before midday. Unlike the McSwans, his death had been a doddle. Everything had gone swimmingly. Archie was dead. Rosalie was next. His tools worked well. The storeroom was secure. The body was hidden. The assets would soon be legally his. And the scrambled eggs were smashing. So why should the rest of it be anything but simple? The murder of Rosalie Henderson should have been easy-peasy. But something would go horribly wrong. Friends, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. That was part four of Sulfuric, the true story of John George Haig, with the penultimate part of six continuing next week. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Steph Thomas, Jim Hendry, and Paxoman. And as always, a special thank you to everyone who has liked, shared, commented, and reviewed this small independent podcast. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Selling a little? 
or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that was that. You're probably hearing, uh, uh, you'll listen to this and you'll go, oh, that was good. I hope that was well. That's the second recording I did of that this morning. Oh, dear. So, uh, I'm moored up on the canal, as always, because I live on the canal and record on the clan. All good. I've got a very nice neighbour to the, the left of me. He's a good, good bloke, very nice. Met him on the first day. He's got a bigger boat than mine. Much bigger, much higher, much longer, much taller. So, because I was on the uh, nearest towpath, he was on the outside. I said, look, let's swap it around because your boat is bloody huge. And I can get on the outside, which is better. That's the way it should be on the canal. Big boats on the outside, little boats. Oh, no, big boats on the inside. Little boats on the outside. So we did the swap, and that's all very good. But I needed to record. Uh, and because it could be quite noisy and, you know, dawn and coots, bloody coots. Um, it's quite noisy. I decided this morning, let's get up at 5 a.m. Because just outside my boat is uh, the towpath. But the towpath, uh, the the slabs in it, uh, they're not particularly good. They have a bit of a rocking sound to them. So every three minutes or less at this time in the morning, a, a bike goes past. It goes, da-dung and it's really loud and you have to stop everything and you know there's the bin men doing their job and but also um i thought let's get up early and get all that done uh but also i uh, my neighbor has a back boiler on his boat so um because the only way you can really make hot water on a boat is either you put your fire on or you like i do use your your oven or you have a back boiler you switch it on early and then when you, when you wake up you can, you, know, you can have a shower so i thought right let's get up at 5 a.m that means I can start recording at like quarter past five, start recording, get through it. And then by the time hopefully he wakes up around 7 a.m., which is what, it, is what it, the time is now, uh, his back boiler, he'll just be switching it on. Therefore, I can, therefore, if it comes on now, when extra miles on, who cares? No one cares about this bit. Uh, but the first bit is important. Anyway, I woke up, got everything set up 
and the second I sat down to start recording, and it's not loud, but it's just, it's kind of that drone in the background. And I thought, oh no, what do I do? So I put up, I've got all my bed sheets up on the windows and the doors and everywhere and all the pillows up. And I've moved my desk around, so I'm, I'm, I'm not in my proper seat, I'm in a creaky seat. Probably hear it's creaking away. So every time I breathe, it it moves. Uh, so I've shifted my way around the other way. My little sound booth that I have made, I made it out of a shoebox and and some sponges. That's there, and I can still hear it. And I thought, you know what, sod it. I'll keep going. I'll record this, and I'll, but I'll record the sound of the uh, the back boiler. And then hopefully I can isolate that sound later on. And then three quarters of the way through this record, I done it I, it was going really well and then and then it was it must have been oh god it must have been about just after six he decided to switch off his back boiler and i was like oh no it was off and it really distracted me because all of a sudden now i could hear everything now i could hear i could hear myself i could hear and it was i was like oh it was a good recording so but i thought you know what sod it i'll redo the whole lot so uh yeah i redid that so uh that's that that was exciting wasn't it um probably not uh so i hope this is recorded okay um i literally i'm recording this now and as soon as this finishes unfortunately now after that i have to go back in and check that i click the right setting on my uh recording uh if i haven't that means i've got to redo it again which i'm not looking forward to because uh we're running out of time we're all we're not running out of time but i'm trying to i've got i've i've got is this? Is this second of December? Second of December today? I don't know. Uh, anyway, I've, I've got to. I've got to try and get this done because uh, the last episode goes out Christmas Eve, and what I don't want to be is racing to get the episode done on Christmas Day. I don't. I want Christmas. Christmas Eve. Christmas Day. Boxing Day off. Uh, so, oh, dear Lord. Right. Uh, I'm going to make myself a tea. Yay! Anybody want one? Anybody want one? No, good. Uh, pop one on as well. Feet. Oh, I haven't got any socks on. Really cold. My fire was still on when I when I woke up, which is nice. The coals are still warm, etc. So everything was nice. But now it's gone a little bit. Gone a little bit chilly underneath. Open the windows. Cup of tea. Two sugars, obviously. Don't mind that. Uh, powdered milk, yeah, even though it's winter. Even though it's winter and I can get milk, I'm trying not to. I try not to have too much milk and too much sugar, so there we go. Oh, coming back, coming back, coming back. Oh, I did consider almost doing this in my bedroom today. I did consider putting all the sheets up and popping a table on my bed because I don't have a, I don't have a desk in there, but I have a movable table. I thought about putting it on my bed so I could stand up and record it there, but I thought, oh, sod it, let's just try this. And then he switched his bloody back boiler off. It's so loud, so loud. But you live on the waterway, you've got to got to put up with things. So uh, right. Well, it, uh, it's start of December, going really cold, uh, fire's on, which is nice, it's all nice and toasty, got loads of logs, uh, got all my coal, got all my gas, got all my water, everything's good, I'm kind of heading heading out to uh, a place where I like, I'm kind of on a bit of a journey now, I'm heading 
near to a place where I'd normally moor up so I can be near the archives. So at end of end of January, start of February, I can be near the archives. So when I'm there for like four or five weeks, I can just I can just walk and cycle to and from the archives and be really close, rather than have to truck across town to get there because it because it's down in queue and it can be a bit of a pig to get there. Um, update. Uh, I think last week you probably heard me and I had a chest infection. It turned out it wasn't it wasn't a winter cold of all things. Oh dear, burpees. It wasn't a winter cold after all that. Um, what it was was because because I I fractured three ribs a couple of years ago. Well, I was on my fortieth birthday. Someone gave me some drinks. Uh, I f- fell into the canal. I either need myself in the chest or hit the water hard, or I hit the boat. But I don't remember hitting the boat. I didn't hit hurt my face. So, but what I know is I really really messed up my ribs ribs really badly and because ribs are ribs you can't you know unlike when you break an arm you can't put it in a plaster it basically is is when it's broken it's broken and that's it and they probably will repair themselves but they'll never repair fully but the problem is uh when you do fracture or crack or your ribs because because it's painful to sit up or roll over or anything or even breathe (coughs) you're not breathing fully apparently so um that means you're not expelling all of the toxins out of your system so that's what i had so um a couple of weeks a couple of weeks ago oh dear um i was getting up in bed i put my hands down by my side i lifted myself up i heard a kind of a crack and i was like oh i felt like it was just my breastbone but it was um it was uh my uh ribs re-cracking so that was it that's what last week's uh, was it was a bit of a chest infection caused by that so uh so anyone who came on my tour uh end of november uh uh don't worry you wouldn't have got a cold for me it was just a just a chest infection uh how else are you doing diet wise this is interesting diet wise okay i have had a couple of bakewell tarts i treated myself to some bakewell tarts some sainsbury's ones they do some nice bakewell slices well done sainsbury's um they uh treat myself to some on saturday because i'd done uh I'd done uh, like a 20 mile cycle to go into town to record some of the videos which go I think one of the videos with this episode I've recorded 20 mile cycle to get in did a tour came back did like four or five hours of editing and then I thought you know I'd I'd already walked 16,000 steps as well so I thought bollocks to it I'm gonna have some beers and some bake or tarts because I've earned it Uh, so that was nice but I had a couple of days when I was at the uh, uh, ACAS Christmas party which is very nice it was fine uh wasn't too i actually left at 10 o'clock i was too tired i couldn't be bothered with doing anything that night i wasn't in the mood for partying uh so that was all good uh but then in the morning i'd kind of prepped for a hangover but i didn't really have a hangover but i'd bought myself bacon and some bread so i could do bacon sandwiches i thought a good baker good hangover cure um oh it didn't feel good i bought myself treats like some a little bit of chocolate and some cake and stuff like that and because I'd come off my diet, I felt really awful. I felt really sluggish and tired, and had a head, had quite a few headaches. And it was it was weird. I think I think when you live on a diet, you, sometimes you know you might think to yourself, "Oh, my diet, you know, what I eat is, isn't that bad." But when you look at it, it is actually quite bad. We have a lot. Of, I don't normally eat a lot of processed foods, but um, yeah, it was weird. It was like because um, I'm now used to. Eat, used to eating like leeks and garlic and fresh fish and vegetables and fruit and you know i don't really have any wheat but i have some rye bread and you know things like that uh occasionally some eggs uh, i eat quite a 
decent healthy diet but when I came off that and had some processed foods oh dear I can really feel it in my system it's like you put you put chocolate piece of chocolate on your tongue and if you haven't had it for a couple of weeks you can feel the fat burning into your tongue and you think that's not right and uh, you know things in my stomach start feeling really weird so it's a uh, um, especially breads as well breads of kind of weird eating them and kind of it's not just bloating you up it's kind of it's there's a weird i felt really tired and sluggish and headachy and uh i had some mayonnaise on a sandwich and i felt drunk it's weird all these things that we're kind of, i know your body can adjust to it but whoa weird weird it didn't uh cup is almost done just wanted to say uh thank you to all the patrons out there i know i always put a thank you to the patrons on uh the start of the show but i put one in here as well because um <coughs> their funding has been really helpful to um help fund this podcast it's not laptops oh uh, uh cuppa's doing cuppa's doing hang on hang on hold, hold that thought hold that thought uh, this is all academic isn't it because i'm saying all these words but if i've if i've checked i've got if i've recorded this in the wrong setting then i'm screwed really so uh this is all academic uh cup of tea lovely cup of tea nothing better than a nice cup of tea cup of tea oh rich if you're listening to this i hope you're having a cup of tea with it you probably are like me you're probably having about 50 cups of tea a day minimum uh so you're probably not listening to this bit either because you probably hate the sound of listening to me as much as i hate the sound of listening to me as well right uh no big thank you to all the patrons um your uh subscriptions every week are very much appreciated uh with that what i've been able to do uh so i've uh i've covered the cost of my website for the next couple of years which has been brilliant uh you know the the cost of having the 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 domain there and the hosting is really expensive it's like and even though i know most people don't use it it's really useful for the blogs and getting all the information out there and you know it's an invaluable source if you want to go and look at all the videos and all that it's 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 you know i use uh, that's what the money goes for uh i've also reserved the uh uh murder mile uh domain name for the next for the next five years which is great but more importantly than that i'm going to cover the years of my laptop on this uh, all of these shows have been recorded on my little laptop uh my little lenovo that i bought i've got about f- probably about three or four years now three or four years ago now yeah it was before i did the podcast it was uh, kind of the start of doing the tours my little podcast uh, it's about six, seven hundred quid. It's the most I could afford. It doesn't have a massive memory, but it was enough. And I've used that literally for every episode you've heard so far, including this one. Uh, and I'll still be using this for the next couple of episodes. Uh, but what I've been able to do because of the Patreon supporters, thank you very much. Uh, I've been able to uh, buy a new laptop. So I've got a, a new laptop, uh, an Asus. Uh, Asus is quite good. Um, good, uh, fast one. Uh, really good uh, one for audio. It doesn't have all the graphics cards because I don't use graphics, but it's got a good audio capability, larger memory, and even better, it has a huge battery on it. So this battery here on this one, um, it's meant to be about six hours. I think maximum I get is four. Uh, sometimes I get as little as two and a half hours on it, which is not good when because all all this is recorded off off uh, battery power because I don't have mains. Well, I do have mains, but if I switch on the mains, you'll hear a 
in the background and that'll either be the engine or my generator so i can't record in silence so everything you hear and all of it being edited is mostly done on battery power and it literally is i have three hours maximum and i'm racing to try and get things done and to write it as well so it's it can be a real pain but this new one has got a 14 hour battery now even if part of that is bs even if i don't get the full 14 hours which i almost certainly won't even if it's down to uh even if you're half that, that's eight hours eight nine hours that's that's like that's a whole that's a whole day of work for me so that's great so it's, that's saving uh, uh energy as well which is great so i'm looking forward to that so thank you to everyone thank you to the patrons on that uh I, at the moment i'm keeping money in there at the moment what i'm what i'm trying to do is keep that as a kind of an emergency fund so it's so that's the whole point is that you know, I, I was predicting that this laptop will die. Uh, of its USB ports, it has three. Two of them are gone. Uh, one of them, it's on its last legs. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's uh, the the mouse pad doesn't work. The keyboard doesn't work fully. It's like the screen, the touch sensitive screen is broke. Uh, it's really it's really old, and it's it's the poor little thing. It's basically when I'm editing uh, these shows, I have to keep hitting save like every every thirty seconds or so because if I don't, it it crashes and it like sometimes during an edit like it can crash like two or three times an hour. So just because the just because it's like it's about ten gigabytes of data just for one episode, and uh, my little laptop is struggling with that. So this will be my backup laptop from now on. So if anything goes wrong with the new one, I can just do that or. Or I'm thinking about carrying this over to the archives. Um, so, do you know, uh, if the worst happens, worst comes to worst, I've still got my original laptop. So there we go. That's that was that was all uninteresting, wasn't it? Right. Uh, coming up soon. What I've decided to do was uh, obviously this was episode four of Sulfuric. I hope you're enjoying it. It's as I said before. It's deliberately meant to be something very different from. Uh, Blackout Ripper and the Reg Christie's they had their own, their own kind of style and thing this is something very different in the way that we're I'm taking this entirely from the killer's perspective which is something I rarely do I'm very much not focusing too much on the victims um, uh, and uh, also yeah it has its own style as well uh, so they're a real nightmare to create uh, which is why uh, in this extra mile sections this is why i kind of say i'm thinking about telling you this but i might not because i'm because tomorrow i'm going to start working on episode five and i already have planned it i've put all the data on my page what i'm going to do but i moved a lot of data from eps one two three to four and then four to five so there's things so this like like i said last week there was things in episode three that i was going to use ep four but i do you know what? I didn't fully use them here. Sometimes sometimes when you're writing it, you decide not to use them, or, or in the edit as well. You just edit them out for time. Uh, so what I'm thinking about doing, we've got a Q&A episode coming up. That will be in the first week of January. That's before. That's basically the end of our season. So if you do have any questions, email me, use social media, or if you want to, you've got it on your phone, record me a little voicemail message, uh, and then you can send it to me. Um, my email address is on the website, mmiletours at, at gmail.com. It's easy to find. Uh, or you, you can use a, a system called WeTransfer or any of those transfer things. Just send it to me and then I can, I can instead of me reading out your email, I can, you know, you can play your message. But, but, but keep it short. Keep it like 20 seconds. Uh, otherwise, I'll, I'll have to cut it down. Uh, so we're doing that. But what I'm thinking about doing is doing maybe an extra mile, extra, extra episode about John George Haig. 
because there's loads of letters that I found in the archives between him. He, he wrote loads of letters, and loads of them are kind of the, the fake ones that he wrote from his dead victims or letters that he wrote to his parents or also not mentioned in here i'm probably not going to mention her at all uh was his his uh i mentioned her i think a little bit once uh was his uh his inverted commas girlfriend barbara uh he did have an inverted commas girlfriend barbara uh around the time of the murder so i haven't put her in because i it, it kind of throws you off a little bit but i might I'm thinking about putting all of his letters to her and his parents in there because I think they're really interesting and they give you an insight into his life. Uh, right, let me just see what we're going to add into here. Okay, so there were bits from last week that I didn't mention about, which was um, uh, obviously he'd uh, he killed the McSwans. He had access to the, the house. He had the keys so he could let himself in. The family were dead. He had power of attorney. Uh, so he could pretty much go in and out of the flat whenever he wanted. And the kind of the landlady and the neighbours who were there could hear him walking around uh, uh, 45 Claverton Street, which was the McSwan's uh, family home. And he could they could hear him walking around and uh, Joe helping himself to stuff. But he, he legally he was allowed to do that. It was all on paper. So uh, that was all fine. Um, <coughs> so I briefly mentioned that a little bit at the start of this episode, but uh, the landlady was Mrs. Mrs. Rathage. Um, she lived in the basement. Uh, in there was also her daughter Constant, Constance, and a tenant called Lucy Philippe. Uh, and he had told them that the McSwans had left for America. Although when I look in, I've mentioned this in this episode. When I um, I looked in a lot of the other statements. He he said Scotland and Ireland as well. It's like he changed his story a lot. Uh, Mrs. Rathage also received a call from Haig saying uh, saying that they had had to leave urgently. Um, it was imperative, but the reason was unspecified. Uh, and she noted that uh, Johnny Haig came back to uh, forty five. Cleverdon Street on several occasions to pay the McSwan's rent. This was kind of his way of making sure that no one, because obviously this is the thing, isn't it? That people would kind of, um, would you notice that someone's missing? Yes, if they owed you money and the money was missing. But if the money turned up and they, you know, uh, the money turned up and they were still missing, you wouldn't be that bothered. Which is why, you know, we you hear those stories all the time about like people who die in their flats. And like the a, a council worker comes in three years later and sees the mummified remains of a person, and the you know, the fire's still on, and the letters are piled up, and everyone's like, "Why did no one notice?" And it's like, "Well, because you know, their rent was paid, their bills were paid. You know, today we've got direct debit, but in in uh, Haig's era, he was doing it himself. Do you know, he went in, he sorted out the milk bottles, he sorted out the post. Do you know, he made it look like he was officially there to look after their stuff. He paid the rent. He, as mentioned, he even uh, paid uh, Archie's uh, Archie's Max subscription to the Amusement Caterers Association, which was a great way of, you know, it cost him a little bit of money, but it was a, he knew he'd get that back eventually through them by just keeping everything sweet. So uh, that's kind of quite interesting. Uh uh, he he, da, 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 da. he asked for those. Uh, yes, okay. So, um, Mrs. Lucy V. Philippe, who was one of the uh, the tenants there, um, 
Haig asked her to do some cleaning of the McSwans flat, which is kind of a bit bold of him, given the fact that he was looting the place. And when she went in there, she was the one who said uh, she found that it was full of like dirty teacups and there was food in the cupboards and dirty dishes left on the table and bread in the bread bin. Everything was there. And they said this was really weird as um, the McSwans, especially Donald McSwan, the father, was quite a tight-fisted man. There's a bit of a... They, they, they say... Uh, her quote in there is like being a Scotch man, uh, i.e. another word for a Scottish man. He was quite mean and tight-fisted, but it, it's not to do with him being Scottish. It's, it's his upbringing. You know, he was you know, uh, very conscious of, of of keeping things away. And they said that he would never, he would never throw anything out. He would never waste anything. He was not a wasteful man. Do you know, like every piece of a loaf of bread would be used. You know, even if it was even if it was stale, he would find another way of using it. He was that type of person. So even though he had a load of money in the bank, he, uh, you know, he, he wasn't a wasteful man. So when they went in there, they found this was kind of interesting uh, that he would um, that things would be left bef- behind. Uh, but Johnny Haig, even in the McSwan's own house, even though he got a paperwork that says I'm dealing with their affairs, he sold a lot of their personal items to uh the landlady and the other tenants there um like their their clothes and furniture and stuff like that he was like yep um do you know uh he expired their rent he said okay uh, he paid for a couple of months and then he said okay they don't need it anymore so he got rid of the property it was rental so you could rent it out to other someone else and uh um he basically uh yeah he had uh, the other tenants kind of buy their stuff so the jojo the crap that he didn't want really um oh this was a quote uh mr mcswan was a scotch man very mean he would never leave things behind that was uh lucy's quote there uh, but yeah no he'd, he'd said that they'd gone to very different uh places either scotland uh, or ireland or america interesting uh so uh, Johnny Haig, he'd set, uh, obviously late, uh, he'd set up his own engineering firm. This was on paper when he was murdering McSwan. He used the name Union Group Engineering, as mentioned. It was kind of because it, the name was nearer to um, uh, Union Road and Tool Company, which was Alan Stevens' uh, company. It's a very similar name, and they're both both registered in Crawley. So I think he was trying to use it as kind of, you know, if anything goes wrong, Alan's company will be the one that they'll look at. Uh, but by uh, late 1944, having murdered uh, Mac McSwan, he really uh, set up his own company, not just in name, but also as a real entity, uh, with the aim of working between, as, a, as a kind of liaison between inventors, patentees and engineering firms. As mentioned on his business card, he gave himself the initials of BSc, which is Bachelor of Science, and the title of Technical Liaison Officer that he'd used before. Uh, He said that he got the BSc from a correspondence course with the University of California, but in in truth, this was bullshit. Uh, He also described himself as an engineer, but he had no technical training. Uh, His letterhead stated that he had branches in Crawley, Croydon, Patney and Wimbledon. Uh, which was incorrect. Uh, and the company claims that they do general engineering, small repetition, uh, which is large runs of identical parts, are gauge makers for uh, MCS, which is measurement control systems. Uh, he also does, um, God, this took me ages to find out, IGA, which is instrument gauge analysis. Uh, whether he did that, we don't know. This could have just been bullshit that he put on there. 
He was also based out of the Onslow Court Hotel, as mentioned. Um, if you, uh, as always, you know, I don't, I don't mention things unless uh, they're important for later on. I know some people listen to this podcast for like the first time and they go, uh, uh, "Why is he mentioning about all the things that uh, a person has put got in their room? What is the point in mentioning if they have flowers in their pot and things?" Uh, but as you know, I only mention things if they're important, and so so. But what I've what I've done, as with all the other series, I kind of seed ideas. So obviously, you've heard about Onslow Court multiple times before, in the same way. Same way you've already heard about Two Leopold Road, like like four episodes back. Like I lay all these things in, and even in this episode, I'm laying things in for episode five and episode six. So there's a lot in there. Um, uh, had a look through. Uh, uh johnny haig did not submit any tax returns during this period uh one of the things i did go looking for i thought to myself you know this would be interesting to see what actually his finances really are i got access to his bank statements they were in the police file (coughs) but there was no tax returns he did not file his taxes naughty naughty boy uh what else we got uh, we mentioned okay. We mentioned about the uh, inventions he was working on. That was the uh, the needle threader, which was actually uh, invented by Ernest Feuerhood. Uh He'd met him around the time, just well, it's actually just before or around the time that he was he was involved with Mac McSwan. Uh, Ernest actually died in 1948, so uh, before the murder of Archibald Henderson. But even though he was dead. And he and uh, um, uh, Johnny still kept touting this idea around of the the needle threader and getting making money off it, even though he he had no skills to do anything with it. Uh, he was also working on the pocket battery powered fan and the silent jackhammer, all of which came to nothing. <coughs> oh dear! Hursley Products, the company he uh, uh, hooked up with, uh, he was appointed nominal director by managing director. Edward Charles Roland Jones. I just call him Edward Jones in this episode. They met in August 1945, being introduced by Alan Stevens. Uh, having done some experimental engineering at, at uh, Johnny's request. Uh, Edward was originally based out, of, based out of Leopold Road. It was one of the small premises he had, which he'd purchased off Alan Stevens. Um, I had to put that in because it gets a little bit confusing that people always go uh, it was Edward Jones's property but it wasn't originally originally it was Alan Stevens property but then it became Edward Jones's property which Johnny uh, had access to it makes it very confusing so I had to layer that in early uh, um, so 1945 when they met uh, Edward expanded in 1947 uh, he had a a premises of West Street in Crawley uh, and the St Giles, so the, the the Giles Yard storeroom, which is at ten Leopold, a uh, ten two Leopold Road. Oh God, my brain's gone tired. Uh, so two hundred two hundred twenty five pounds was the money that uh, Johnny gave to Edward Jones uh, for the company. Um, for that, obviously, he didn't take a wage. He was really focused, as mentioned by this point, he was really focused on being an engineer and doing kind of important things of being an engineer, not being a killer. He'd got his money. He was like, right, killing's gone. Killing for him was literally just a way of getting money. That's all it, for him, it was like going to the bank. Uh, but you didn't take a wage with that. What he he did was they worked together uh, and he would occasionally ask for favours, you know, like, 
use of the storeroom or do you know uh, as mentioned uh ration coupons petrol ration coupons obviously petrol was in short supply but if you were a company director you got extra rations because you know your job is more important than other people and you know you've probably got delivery trucks that need uh things delivery so that's one of the things why he reasons why he did that uh jones's factory was at uh brockworks at 15 west street in crawley not too far away Ay, 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 ay. What else do we need? What else do we need? Uh, Edward Jones and John George Haig got on really well. They really liked each other. There was, um, unlike with a lot of his victims, where he was kind of like he he saw him just as, as saw his victim just as money. They had a kind of a mutual interest. They liked uh, inventions together. Uh, they saw each other as investor and inventor. Uh, they had obviously the needle thread that they were working on. They, I think they'd uh, they'd they'd been given. I haven't got it. Oh yeah, here. Um, they'd been advanced four hundred pounds, which is a lot of money then, to develop the needle threader. Um, and they were in discussions with Flex Toll Engineering Company of Ealing uh, to develop the silent jackhammer as well. So there was a lot of work going on. It hadn't really made them any money, but it was kind of they had a mutual respect for each other. Um, and also Edward wasn't making major money, so he wasn't. There's was no way that uh, Johnny was going to kill him. Ay, 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 calamba. Yeah, they had originally met when um, uh, Jones was doing a sm- small, small detailed pieces for coil welding. I still haven't worked out what that is. I love diving into these things to find out what... They- like I did with the battery at the start, when it was like when th- they said they, the, uh, the, the acid from the bell... And a lot of people in books they refer to it as a bell, like a like a ringing bell, but it's not. It's it's a it's a it's a bell battery, um, the old acid bath type. Uh, I lo- so I love doing that. I, I don't like things that don't make sense to me. I like diving in. Uh, what else we got? Oh yeah, oh yeah, Johnny. So Johnny was hemorrhaging a shit ton of money. Uh, I'm gonna have a slurp of tea. Uh, around this point. Um, now, as mentioned, it was uh, he was booked in uh, Onslow Court Hotel, was just over five pounds a week, which was a lot of money, plus ten percent service charge. He'd got his two to three cars. He he was renting out a garage. He also had another flat, which I haven't mentioned in here, but it, it I've I've got a photo of it. I can post it online. Uh, at thirty eight Queen's Terrace. Um, the problem is it, it's uncertain what he used that for. He also used uh, various other hotels as well, but also not just his expensive life that he was living. Uh, uh, he also obviously mentioned slightly he had a bit of a gambling problem as well. He really loved gambling. Um, so he loved uh, to back doggies and uh, horses. Uh, obviously, he went to the White City Stadium. Uh, anyone who uh, works for the BBC, uh, over uh, the White City Building is where the old White City Stadium is. It's where, where Freddie Mills uh, uh, did one of his uh, most important boxing fights. I think, was that the one? That could have been the one where he became uh, the light heavyweight champ, British champion. Uh, but that doesn't exist anymore. It was a big, big, huge white palace of a building. That's now gone. Used to be a big... Uh, Mostly a dog track, but apparently they used to do horse racing there as well. Although, or either or, I'm not too sure. Uh, not important to the story, but I know that he he did a lot of his betting there. So, uh, Johnny had a lot of debts. So, to Wilson Fortescue of Burlington Street, he owned a hundred and fifteen pounds sixteen shillings and sixpence. That's since November nineteen forty six. 
they were commissions agents, which means they were bookies. Uh, and they said uh, he would he would pay them off, but all the checks would constantly bounce. From R.J. Froome and Sons, Sons on Cambridge Street, he owed uh, another hundred pounds since November nineteen forty eight. So that will be coming up soon. Oh no, sorry, the account was uh, September nineteen forty five. Again, he would try and pay them off, but the checks would bounce, and he would send bullshit letters. Hendley and Coy of London uh, on Regent Street. He owed them £54.19 shillings since uh, 1945. That was a betting shop. I might have a look to see where 87 Regent Street is. It's on my patch. Uh, he keeps sending them letters on different letterhead. Um, but obviously this would keep bouncing as well. He kept moving his money around and things like that. Cameron and Company on St Martin's Lane. This is back at Covent Garden. He owed them £45 doesn't sound a lot now but back then it really was a lot of money don't forget he's paying five pounds a week to live in a very expensive kind of serviced apartment in in kensington so that shows how much 45 pounds is uh, again he was sending letters saying oh yeah yeah here's, here's your check but they kept bouncing goodwin brothers of randolph gardens uh he owed 37 pounds again same excuses so in total 350 353 pounds in total uh, so that's a lot of money. How long are we doing for time? I'll just do a really quick bit. Uh, Archibald Henderson, so we mentioned all about that. That's good. I pretty much covered most of his back history, prominent background. Pretty much the same as same as Archie. You can, this is what I'm enjoying, is uh, the fact that you can see a correlation between him and his victims, uh, which most people don't seem to have picked up on, which is weird. There is a direct correlation between him and his victims of of what he wants and who he wants to be. And, uh, yeah, by writing this one, it's actually um, made me think a lot about the next multi-part series that I'm going to end with next year, uh, which will take me a long time to do, long time to really research, because there's an angle I want to take on it. But by doing this episode, it's given me a little, little insight into something else. So, um... Yeah, I'm going to have to make a note of that later on, of, of what I'm doing with this. Um, okay, uh, back to where I was. Um, uh, yep, we've got Archie, uh, not a particularly nice man, a bit angry, an alcoholic. Very, this this is where they differ in many ways, is that although they were both kind of money-obsessed, they hate working really hard, they were always looking for kind of a, a, a wealthy woman who, who would keep them as a, a kept man. Um both gamblers but the difference was Archie was a massive drinker uh and Johnny was not Johnny would meet up with the Hendersons and he you know he would have a little sherry uh he would have and he'd, he'd started to smoke a bit by this point but that really was he was never an excessive drinker at that point he would have a sherry and that that would be his uh his max uh as mentioned um there is a uh, wonder whether uh, Archie did assist in the death i'm being de discreet how i put this dis assist in the death or decline of his first wife francis dorothy Orr. uh obviously she had loads of properties around town one at 39 hanover square which is just off oxford street uh harrington gardens in knights bridge um they got together because when uh, Archie was at Glasgow University, one of his buddies was a guy called Dr. Henry McBride. And Henry and Archie studied together at university. And that's how um, he met uh, Dorothy Orr, who was 
Henry McBride's sister. Oh, that, that's true. Why the names are really different, I don't know. Oh, maybe she was, she was probably married previously. I haven't looked into that. Uh, so, yeah, unhapp- unhappily married. They drank a lot. They quarreled a lot. She went into a depression. There's a suspicion that because he supplied her with prescription medications and kept her drinks topped up because when she was drunk, she'd pass out and stuff like that, that it, it led to uh, her death. Nearing the end of her life, he had actually started working together. But Archie had started working to, back again as a doctor. He was at uh, Netley Military Hospital in Southampton. Uh, it was said that he didn't want the money. He just wanted to get away from her. Uh, so it was a very unhappy relationship. We'll be diving more into Rosalie, his wife, next week, which is why I've deliberately in this episode kind of I've bulldozed through her. Uh, not literally not literally but kind of her life is kind of important to the story so next week's is uh hers uh what else we got oh yeah this oh no no we'll save that for next week i almost gave that away uh no i think you know what no i'm not going to say any more only because i don't want to give away too much because there's bits and pieces that will be important for next week and i'm i'm yet to write episode five so uh i don't want to i don't want to balls it up so that's that that was that what time is it it's probably like half seven. Oh, people are just waking up now and i've done done two hours i'll do an edit on this and then i need to start working on episode five. Oh, what's going on outside coot was a little bit noisy this morning but not too bad he was kind of it was only near the end he was having a bit of a moment I think someone had spilt his cornflakes or something, something pointless. And he was having a bit of a... But then he shut up for a bit, which is good. Uh, and normally there's a dog where I am. There's a dog that's outside that their owner... I don't know why. It's like every morning at 6am, their owner lets the dog out. There's no gardens around here, so it must be a pro- it must be a public garden. He lets his dog off and his dog just stands there and goes... Bah, 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 really loud and just lets it bark for hours. And it's like... And there's a guy who goes past uh, our boats every night at 11 o'clock singing. And he's got a really awful singing voice. <sighs> anyway, that's that. That was good. So I'm going to start editing this. Hope you enjoyed that. That was good. We've got two more episodes of uh, Sulfuric to come. And then we've got the, I'll do the uh, Omnibus edition. So it's uh, I'll put them all on two episodes. So you can listen to them back to back without the extra mile bullshit. There'll be a Q&A episode. And I will probably, I'm thinking about it, doing the, uh, as mentioned, the extra John George Haig bit. With all the letters, because the letters are really interesting. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on that we can't... I, I could do you an extra episode of Sulfuric, but I said at the start it's a six. And I feel, I feel it suits being a six. I think an extra episode would be... An extra... Murder Mile episode will be a bit of an indulgence. We'd be covering a lot of the same ground, so I, I think it it'd be better if it's a uh, an extra mile episode. So you can you can take the choice whether you know decision whether you want to listen to it or not. Just like this waffle, right? That's me done. Uh, I'm going to go and edit this. Uh, well, not edit this. That makes it sound like it's really quick and I can do it in a day, which it doesn't. These these take about three whole days to edit. And the last episode, I was racing against the wire because I was trying to get it out ready for the... Because Patreon listeners get this on a Monday. And I'd recorded it. When did I record it? I recorded it last Sunday. Before the last tour... Before the tour that I did. But... 
because I was working on writing this episode, and that was imp- I didn't want to break my thread. I had to edit in the evenings, so I only got it finished on Sunday night, ready for the month. Oh, God, it was hard work. Anyway, two more to go. Right, shut up, Michael. Shut up. Let's let's do stuff. Right, uh, everyone, have yourselves a good day. Uh, enjoy yourselves. Have a cup of tea. Have a cake if you want to. I'm going to have a Belgian bun. Lots of love. Catch you soon. Bye bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.